This is Healthy Together, presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. Visit rwjbh.org to learn more. And now here's our host, WCBS's Marla Diamond. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Together podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Today, the story of pioneering modern medicine from the heart. I'm joined by Dr. Margarita Camacho, the Surgical Director of Cardiac Transplantation at RWJ Barnabas Health. Dr. Camacho, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You are one of only 200 women in the U.S. to become a board-certified thoracic surgeon. Why did you choose this specialty? Well, when I was in medical school, um, I was fascinated by the surgical rotation where I could use my hands to heal. And uh, during the, my surgical residency, uh, I was fascinated by cardiovascular physiology. And thought, so I thought there would be nothing better than to be a cardiac surgeon. I was hoping that you could detail your journey in medicine as a woman in a male-dominated field. Yeah, so it was a very interesting one, I must say. In medical school, there were quite a few women. Uh, it wasn't as male-dominated during medical school. And in fact, these days, I think uh, over 50% of medical school graduates are women. But the field of surgery is totally different. So uh, back then, and I went to medical school and trained in the 80s into the early 90s, uh, there were very few women in general surgery and even fewer in cardiac surgery. Uh, I must say, though, that uh, women in surgery, uh, is, that wasn't a new concept then, uh, despite the fact that it was years ago. Uh, women had been uh, doing, uh, had been become surgeons uh, way back in the 60s and 70s at least. Uh, so by that time, um, I would say that although it was male dominated, uh, they were the men, the, my male colleagues were very receptive to women. I didn't really uh, encounter uh, any major problems uh, with respect to gender difference. Um, and I will say that by sh just sheer numbers, there were so many men um, compared to women. I believe there are over 3,000 uh, male cardiothoracic surgeons and uh, only 200 women. And so most of my mentors actually were men. Uh, some, a few of them were women. And I must say that the women were wonderful when it came to being, to being encouraged to stick with it, don't give up. Uh, as women, uh, we, were, we had major time management issues because many of us uh, were the primary caregivers at home and had to take care of household responsibilities. And not all of us, but most of us. And, uh, you know, call it the nurturing part of us or whatever, we worried about it. So to balance those two things was difficult. And I must say in the women in my peer group who trained at the same time I did in cardiothoracic surgery, uh, I don't believe any of us had children now at that time. Things are very different now. When we were training, uh, you know, the hours were grueling. There are now training rules, uh, you know, hour uh, restrictions so that you can, uh, you know, balance your work personal life. But back then as women, we actually made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, but that said, um, I, the men were very uh, accepting and encouraging, you know, by and large. And tell us uh, what uh, role your family played in your decision to go into this complicated field. 
Well, I was very fortunate. I had parents that totally supported me. Uh, they were first-time immigrants to the Philippines. My father, uh, my parents came here in the mid-late 50s, uh, and really, uh, my father succeeded from the ground up. I mean, he started architecture, became a prominent architect, uh, and was one of the millions of immigrants uh, before him and, and after him who came to realize their dreams here in America. And so they were very encouraging, despite the fact that I chose such an unconventional field. Uh, my first choice when I was in high school and first year of college was really to become a journalist. Uh, however, I wasn't as good in, in English as I was in the sciences. And I had a passion for the sciences, which was really unusual. And I thought to myself, well, you know, my father always said this to me, you have to do what you're passionate about. Uh, because that will get you through the ups and downs, uh, you know, of your career. And so I thought, well, this is really unusual. But because of the encouragement from my parents, I went ahead and took this unconventional journey. I took the plunge. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was in medical school, they continued to encourage me. And I can't tell you how many family events I missed, birthdays, anniversaries, you name it. Uh, and they were always understanding never, never uh, made me feel guilty about any of that. And so that's how I was able to continue this journey uh, and, uh, you know, continue my passion. But you said you made sacrifices in your personal life. You mentioned that uh, the women that were going into surgery at the time that you were um, specializing uh, put off having families. Yes, they did. Uh, in fact, um, uh, one of the uh, most amazing things I heard, and this was probably 10, 15 years ago, is during a board meeting of one of the uh, of uh, the Society of, of Women Cardiothoracic Surgeons, which is called Women in Thoracic Surgery, uh, there was some uh, background chatter about uh, women freezing their eggs, you know, so that they could plan uh, more appropriately when to have families. And I thought that was fascinating and wonderful, uh, something not uh, not available to us at the time. Uh, and uh, yes, we we made those sacrifices. However, I, you know, I will say that, uh, you know, looking back while, you know, children are wonderful, you know, I gave it up to do something I had a passion for and that uh, does save lives. And so, you know, although that was my way of justifying it, maybe I was a little selfish in some ways. I, I love what I do. And so, you know, I never looked back and, and had any major regrets. So talk about saving lives. Last year, you completed your 650th heart transplant? Yes, yes, I did. That's incredible. Can, yeah. you, can you tell us what it felt like to accomplish that as, as one of the few female heart transplant surgeons? Well, I have to tell you, um, first of all, uh, I always say this when I get any type of recognition that how lucky I am to be recognized for something I'm passionate about and how lucky I am to have the most amazing team, uh, you know, and it's because I stand on their shoulders that I accomplished what I did. Uh, it takes a village and uh, I have the best team I've ever worked with in my career not only are they at the top, top of their game, but they're pretty much as passionate as I am uh, about what we all do. Uh, the more accomplishments that women have uh, in our field, uh, the better we can encourage other women who are contemplating 
this career, you know, to not be intimidated, to take that plunge, uh, because there are women who have made such have you know accomplished uh such milestones uh and uh, some of whom have very high positions within cardiothoracic surgery uh so yes i you know i i'm so thankful and grateful you, you know for for being able to accomplish what i did with everybody's uh you know support but i also am thrilled that we can hopefully encourage you know again, more women to, to go into this field if they feel they have the passion for it. Talk about your specialty. You specialize in left ventricular assist devices or LVADs. Can yeah. you explain what that is? Sure. Um, so there are 6 million Americans with heart failure, at least. Uh, and a great number of those, some predict about half a million, have such se severe heart failure that they really need help, either a transplant or some sort of mechanical device to take over most of the work of the heart. Uh, and since we can only do several thousand transplants a year because of donor shortage, that leaves a huge gap of, of people that uh, you know could really die a, an awful death because when you develop end-stage heart failure and you're in the last year of your life, it is horrible. I mean, you're admitted to the hospital every few months, then every few weeks, not being able to breathe, and then you're done. And, and so left ventricular assist devices uh, came into being um, way back in the 70s, but it wasn't until the late 80s when you could start to go home with the very, very first generation devices. So when I was training, um, we had those first generation devices and it, it was proven to the FDA that that could not only increase the survival of someone dying from heart failure, but it could improve their quality of life so that they're not dying that type of awful death. The problem is these first generation devices were big and clunky and they didn't last very long. They lasted maybe three or four years at best. And I knew at that time that they were developing the much smaller devices. So thankful, I am so thankful that, um, you know, this became a reality uh, back in about 2008 or nine where smaller devices were implanted and now they're even smaller and they last longer. Um, it's anticipated that they will last possibly 15 or more years without having to be changed. Uh, we have a patient with not even the most, uh, a current device because hers was placed uh, 14 and a half years ago. She's got the same device. Um, we're fortunate to be part of pretty much all the FDA trials. So we get the devices before, you know, non-trial centers do. So it's because of that, that we were able to save her life 14 and a half years ago when she was only 29 years old. And she's already been, you know, uh, uh, in the news because she's one of the longer survivors. And at the time she had the device in, she had a, like a six or eight month old son who's now a wonderful young adult. Uh, and to see what that device did for her, her life, her family, uh, it's, it's just incredible. There are thousands and thousands of stories like that. Um, I think the youngest uh, uh, patient I put such a device in uh, who survived was a 17. So, and the oldest was I think 80. So. You know, the, we've saved so many lives with these devices, and more importantly, we've improved their quality of life. 
That's interesting. I mean, on a personal note, when I worked at Robert Wood Johnson Hospital in New Brunswick, we were um, growing the heart transplant specialty and promoting it. Mm -hmm. And we did stories on these devices being a bridge to transplant. Mm -hmm. And now you're saying that they can replace transplant. Yes. um, In many cases, they will actually, because as I said, there's a donor shortage. Uh, And in the olden days, when we had devices that didn't last as long, then they were more appropriately bridges to transplant because otherwise you'd have to change them. It was a big operation. You know, now we have smaller devices that will last longer. Uh, And there's very, with the shortage of donor hearts, if a heart doesn't become available, you're still going to live a relatively long life and and have a good quality of life. I mean, people go skiing. I've seen pictures of women walking down the aisle in beautiful wedding dresses, you don't know they have a device. It's it's just amazing. It really is. Um, these devices uh, are, are smaller than the, basically the palm of your hand almost, and they will take over the work of the failing part of your heart, and they'll just keep going. And there are very few, if any, device failures. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that this has you know, really changed, uh, you know, the whole environment for for treating people with uh, end-stage heart failure. Can they be replaced? Yes, they can. And the the operation to replace them usually takes under two hours. It's very simple because, again, these are smaller devices and they're much more sophisticated. Uh, They've had a lot of time to figure out how best to design them. And uh, so now you there is a drive line, which I guess some people would call a lifeline that exits your body and is attached to batteries and a computer, a little a little tiny computer controller that tells the device what to do. So the, the next quest in, in this field is to get rid of that drive line and have everything powered internally. And I think they're much closer to it now than they have been in the past. That's terrific. Um what is your favorite thing about your work? Well, I, I have to say it's it's working with an amazing team to um, see the patients' faces when they wake up from surgery and talk to their families. Um, when you see a heart transplant patient after surgery, they're no longer gray or white. You know, they're pink. And the first thing they do is they tell you how grateful they are and you know not uncommonly i um let the staff know who were involved with the operation the transplant you know how the patients are doing and how grateful they are sometimes i'll come up to the open heart unit and say hello and say i was involved with your transplant and it's just it's just an incredible privilege uh and it's so gratifying to see so to have seen that and done that so many times is just, uh, it's exhilarating. It really is. National Women's Physician Day is in February. What advice would you give to women who are interested in pursuing a career in medicine and to those interested in cardiothoracic surgery or heart transplants specifically? Well, I would tell uh, women who are interested in medicine that this, the, the time is is really right. It's you know, we have worked so hard in the medical field to 
try to assure a work-life balance and try to address any type of burnout, which as we know is, is uh, you know, present in every field, uh, but particularly in medicine, where it can feel sometimes like you're just overwhelmed. Um, all those issues uh, are being addressed. They have been addressed. Uh, you know, you can create the kind of life you want in medicine. You don't have to be 100% clinical. You can be 50% clinical, 50% academic, or whatever combination you want to create that, that work-life balance that, work, that uh, you know, will suit you the best. Um, and also try to be passionate about what it is that you go after. Um, in cardiothoracic surgery, I would, again, you know, encourage women uh, to actually, to actually um, join the Women in Thoracic Surgery uh, Society, which is open to uh, medical students, uh, you know, all types of women in training, uh, to see if this is a type of thing that you're interested in and not to be intimidated by the fact that you're a woman in a man's field because we have achieved so much in this field as women. Uh, we will always mentor those, been, those women you know, uh, who come after us. Uh, and so there's no reason to, to feel uh, afraid about taking that plunge. And I, I also wanted to ask you about heart transplant. You do heart transplant as well, yes, live donor yeah. heart. Are we moving toward longer lifespans for heart transplant? Is there uh, like a minimum or a maximum that you would say that the heart would do well in the patient? Well, you know, whenever we show survival graphs, um, it shows that at 20 to 25 years, only 20% or less of uh, donor hearts are still okay. Uh, does that mean that the patients die? Usually, but in many cases, we can retransplant. For example, if you were transplanted young. Uh, so patients who were transplanted below the age of 30 the first time will usually qualify for a reevaluation for a retransplant you know, if that heart fails uh, when, then, when they're in their 40s or 50s. Um, the younger the donor heart, the longer uh, the survival of the donor heart usually. So uh, in young patients, we try our best to put in young hearts, uh, the younger hearts. Uh, there's, you know, in terms of a cutoff, I would say that you, there is a rare patient who lives beyond 25 years. There are some but it's, it's not common to live beyond 25 years with the same heart. And the uh, LVADs that you implant do not, uh, you wouldn't qualify for that if your donor heart failed? No, because, you know, the donor hearts, when they fail, they tend to get stiff and uh, the heart is just not anatomically, um, you know, able to accommodate an LVAD usually. Uh, that's a very good question, though, because I've often wondered if there were instances where anybody's tried it. And uh, I'll be honest, you know, the last literature search I did was a, a few months ago, and I hadn't seen anything published about putting an LVAD in a, in a failed donor heart. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not to say that that can't be done. I think one thing that could possibly uh, help deter the, the um, deterioration of a donor heart is 
and I'm talking about something that's been studied for over 20 years is, you know, if we made any progress with stem cells, but that hasn't happened. You know, we haven't had success with stem cells. We had a little bit of a, of a temporary success back in 2006 to 2008, where people were paying, uh, you know, out of their pockets to go abroad to get stem cell injections. But unfortunately, the, uh, the results weren't uh, long lasting. So, yeah, we haven't really uh, gotten very far with that. Okay. And I, I, finally, we should put in a pitch for, for donors. How can people donate? Well, you know, it's actually very easy. It's, you can put it on your driver's license. Um, that's really the best way to do it. Or, you, you know, the other thing is to tell immediate family members who know your wishes. Uh, but it's, look, it's the biggest gift you can give anyone. And after you've passed away, it's, it just makes sense, uh, you know, that you could possibly save so many lives. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's extremely easy to donate. And I, I would encourage everyone, anyone. And if you're below, um, if you're a minor, you know, if you make your, and it's a tough, it's a tough conversation, I understand. But, you know, I lecture, uh, every so often to high school students uh, through the Liberty Science Center, we always talk about this. You know, uh, if you uh, can at least have that conversation, if you feel strongly about it, have that conversation with your parents. Uh, so that, God forbid, something happens, you will have given life after you pass away. Dr. Margarita Camacho, Surgical Director of Cardiac Transplantation at RWJ Barnabas Health. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Marla. Thank you so much. I'm Marla Diamond. Please join me again for a journey inside the walls of New Jersey's largest academic health system on the Healthy Together podcast. You've been listening to the RWJ Barnabas Health Healthy Together podcast, brought to you by RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Visit them and learn more at rwjbh.org.